we all want freedom, right? That's what that's that's why Bitcoin exists is to be apolitical freedom money separate from the state. And when you start to then advocate for the state to come and be involved in your freedom money, you know, it's I hate the phrase slippery slope, but it starts to be a slippery slope. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using to buy Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining, who are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs and I am back mining Bitcoin. And actually, do you know what? I've actually been back mining Bitcoin for about nine months with Compass and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin which has pretty much paid off two of my S19s already. And it's so good to be back mining. It's been a really interesting year. It's forced me to learn a lot more about mining again. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass. And to help you, Compass has launched their Compass score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is, and it's based on a number of factors. Price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass has made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining, if you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling at the moment. I'm only buying, and I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Now, Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. So if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Also today we have BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. And now BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now also expanding globally. They've also got this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you do want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more about what they do, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Welcome to the show. Um, Thanks. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. You, uh, you brought receipts. 
I, yeah, just some demonstratives. I also brought a couple gifts. Oh, wow. So here is your very own pocket constitution. Oh, my God. And uh, I could only get two. So you and uh, Jeremy have got to, Danny, have got to fight for that one. Or Thank maybe you. it can be the official uh, what Bitcoin did. Presumably you give him one when you're born here, aren't you? So you probably have one, Jeremy. That's right. I actually left I actually left mine at the office, so I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna use that today. This is really Very fucking cool. cool. So yeah, it's got everything in there. It's got the Declaration of Independence, it's got some uh, some state bill of rights in there. Yeah. The entire framework of the United States legislation. That's right. It's in this little book. That's right. It's funny because so <laughs> you're gonna think I'm a really big nerd, but my, my, I sent it with my son, my six-year-old son for uh, show and tell on Memorial Day. Because <laughs> it was like, oh, bring something that's like patriotic or whatever. And I'm like, I don't have like little flags or like, you know, toy soldiers or anything like that. A gun. But it, you don't have, you know, one of those ATF. If you're listening, I don't have any of those. Straight out of Compton um, on vinyl. Right. So I sent, I sent him with the, the pocket constitution because this is, this is what, you know, our soldiers died fighting for the ideas in this book. And, uh, he was laughing because then I had a treatise, you know, from law school that explains all of it. And it's like a thousand plus pages and it's five times as you know wide. And he's like, wait a second, everything in this little book is the constitution. Then what's all the extra words over there? It's like, well, that's what everybody's fighting over. <laughs> you know? Joe, I'll tell you something really interesting is that, um, Back when you're at school, when right. you're a kid and you're trying to figure out what you want to be or what you, what you want to do in life, you, at certain points in your education, I don't know if it's the same in the US, mm -hmm. but we have options. So when you're about 12, you have a couple of options. One might be uh, choosing between, say, geography and history, mm -hmm. history or one of them and maybe additional language. You just get these little options. Right. And then you do your GCSEs. Electives. Yeah. yeah. And you do your GCSEs and then mm -hmm. you get a couple more options. You yeah. do double science, triple science and whatever. A-levels, you get to pick four subjects. Okay. I picked economics, mm -hmm. <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> I did economics, classical civilization, and geography. And then when you do your degree, you pick one subject. Right. But one of the really interesting things is it's like this journey you have to go on. Mm -hmm. You have to pick these things. And so you just pick something right. you know, might be interested in. But I, I only found when I became an adult uh, that I started to realize the things I wanted to learn mm -hmm. about. And uh, yeah, if I could pick something now, I'd love to go and study American history. Mm -hmm. it, um, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. And the, that's one of the reasons I want to make this show with you is that I want to understand more about the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think it's, I think there's so much, uh, this, I've got so much interest in the history of the people and the debates they had right. to establish what the United States was and is now. Yeah. Um, and, and I know very little about it. And as I ask you, I might ask some dumb questions or ask no, them no. in really dumb ways, but I'm, I'm really interested in it because people do care. I mean, we have the Magna Carta in the mm -hmm. UK, but not really. Which, yeah, which was a foundational document for, for our constitution as well. I mean, it was. But we don't refer to it. We don't talk. Right. We, we, don't, we don't have protests and say, this is against what's in the Magna Carta. <laughs> nobody, nobody even knows what the fuck's in it. I yeah. mean, some people do. Apparently, apparently there's a right to have guns in it, I think, or something. But anyway, I, I don't really, I don't really know. Um, so I am really interested in it because um, just so people know, we're going to be talking about uh, Bitcoin's legal tender and you know, how that fits into this. So, right. Uh, yeah, a little edu little education from you today, please, sir. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I'll set the record straight. I'm not a professor. I'm not a constitutional law scholar. I'm a I'm a practicing appellate attorney. Um, what does that mean? So, appellate attorneys, uh, basically, in you know layman's terms, we don't go to trial. 
we don't, uh, occasionally I will show up at trial if, if we know there's going to be an appeal at some point, but we operate in the reviewing courts, uh, you know, the higher courts. Uh, and we argue that, you know, a judgment or an order should be overturned or upheld. Um, and that's a lot of briefing, a lot of writing, um, and a little bit of argumentation, you know, and when we argue, it's not to one judge, it's usually to a panel of three. Uh, right. and it can be up to nine, you know, on the U.S. Supreme Court. So that's, that's what I do. And my firm represents, you know, regular everyday clients, but also, you know, big corporations. Um, and, uh, you know, we're appellate attorneys are kind of the last of the generalist attorneys. We have to know a little bit about a lot of subjects. So one day I'll be working on, you know, contract law. The next day I'll be working on trust and estates. You know, we do everything from bankruptcy and constitutional law. Um, so it's, you know, we really do kind of cover the waterfront. A bit like this. a GP has to know a little bit exactly. about everything. Exactly. And so I think, you know, I've started writing on Bitcoin and legal issues related to Bitcoin. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I want to be clear, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants and those who've come before me, right? This is, but... Um, you know, a lot of some of my friends, Justin Wales, um, wrote the law review article on Bitcoin as speech uh, okay. in 2019. So, you know, I'm standing on their shoulders, but what I'm hoping to bring is a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, you know, that appellate perspective, having seen, you know, a lot of different areas of the law, um, and we deal with novel issues in the law and everything in Bitcoin is novel when it comes to the law. So I'm hoping I can bring, you know, little bit from here, a little bit from there and find the right, you know, heuristics and the right analogies uh, to make the correct arguments. And, and you're a lawyer who discovered Bitcoin and this is like a side hobby, how you can support Bitcoin on the <coughs> legal side. This is you carving a, a, an area out for yourself. Yeah, that's uh, so a, a little bit about my backstory. I guess my Bitcoin journey is, yeah, yeah I came into it as a regular investor, um, you know, during the pandemic. Uh, but then I quickly understood the value proposition of Bitcoin. And then it, you know, grabbed a hold of me and I fell down the rabbit hole. And there were two experiences I had, I think, that really primed me to understand Bitcoin's value was that apolitical censorship, seizorship resistant uh, money. Um, so the first was, was a personal experience and the second was in my career as an attorney. So when I was nine, uh, my family lived in Liberia, West Africa. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. Yeah, I'll just put it that way. It was during the ceasefire in their civil war. We thought it was more than a ceasefire. We thought that it had been an armistice, but it turned out it was a ceasefire and okay. hostilities resumed. My father was a, uh, a theology professor, seminarian uh, for the Methodist church. Yeah, my mother is a teacher and she taught like therapeutic art at the local school. Um, you know, kids had experienced a lot of trauma during the Civil War and uh, she was helping them through that. Amazing. Yeah, and so we were there um, around 1996 and, you know, I mean, it, everything was just devastated, right? I mean, the, the entire infrastructure, um, you know, it, it, the political system was devastated. There was like a, you know, six president power sharing agreement between all the warlords at the time. Um, and so it was, you know, obviously the economy was cratered 
and you know Liberia had its own currency, the Liberian dollar. Um, other because Liberia is very interesting in that it's not a French colony, even though it's surrounded by you know Ivory Coast and Senegal and some of these other French colonies that are on you know the, the common French uh, what is it, CFA franc. So they had their own currency, um, but you know it, it had cratered uh, obviously. So I I had the experience as a kid of walking around with a fanny pack of, you know, Liberian dollars whenever I wanted to go to the convenience store to like buy something simple, right? Right. Um, so I experienced that, you know, hyperinflation firsthand, basically. Um, you know, the other part of it too was that um, that's what you get when you have a, a money issued by a state. If the state fails, then your money fails. And then not only do you have to rebuild your country physically, rebuild your populace emotionally, right? And overcome the scars of war. But now you also are destitute as a country, right? So that was the, you know, the experience of living there. And like, you know, my parents, look, we were Americans. We were there, you know, from abroad and, you know, we were lucky. We, you know, my dad got paid in USD, um, Somehow there was some banking, you know, affiliate that was able to pay USD cash. So we also did have US dollars that were, you know, everybody, of course, wanted US dollars at the time. Um, but so we just had, you know, we just had a little stockpile of cash because that's how my dad would get paid. And so when hostilities resumed, then we had to evacuate. And... Do you remember that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was I was nine. I was I remember all of it. Um, was it chaotic? It was extraordinarily chaotic because it was one warlord, Charles Taylor, who then became the president and yeah. then was deposed um, and tried for war crimes. Um, he came in from the country and with tanks and everything in the middle of the night. You know, we were locked down. We lived on a compound, right? Like big, thick walls. You know, barbed wire guards that we trusted um, with some of the other you know, missionaries and also local pastors. Um, but we had, to, we had to make it to the embassy to get out because again, we were lucky. We you know, won the cosmic lottery and were born into you know, the country with the reserve currency and the strongest military in the world at that time that could project its military power and send Marines to send out their you know, expats. And were you smuggled to an airport and onto a plane? Yeah, so we, we had to make a run for it without any, I mean, there were like three Marines in the country or something. So we had to make a run for it without any protection. And at not at gunpoint, at the point of a rocket-propelled grenade, Fucking my family hell. was forced out of our car and everything looted and taken from us. So all the cash that my family had, you know, had on hand, clothes, the family cat, right? They took the cat. Took the cat. The yeah, took the cat. Um, so we, you know, we had that experience of being refugees with nothing but the clothes on our backs. And so you, right? you arrive at the airport, you get, you're allowed back in the car, you arrive back at the airport. Yeah, so we get, well, no, we'd, the car's gone. Oh, shit, they took the car. The car's gone, you know, lucky that we got out ourselves. Um, car's gone walk to the embassy, hang out there for a few days. Eventually, you know, Marine helicopters come and take all the, you know, a couple rounds of Americans out. 
That's so, uh, one hell of an experience for a nine-year-old. It, it, it was. <laughs> it was quite the experience. Um, but again, you know, I look back on it now and I look at everything that's happened in the world since and before. And again, I won the cosmic lottery. We were able to get out. Yeah. You know, the Liberians that we worked with and became friends with and played with and, you know, they weren't, they weren't that lucky. Right. Yeah. They had to stay and, and, you know, survive and then rebuild their country. Wow. So that's, uh, God, what experience. Yeah. Uh, so that, so. How did know, that shape you? Well, uh, you know, I, I went on and wanted to do international studies and college and, you know, go work for an NGO and try and try and save the world. Uh, instead I went to law school. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but yeah, so that, so that experience really primed me to understand the value as West, as a Westerner, the, you know, who has the reserve currency in my pocket, um, and who enjoys the rule of law and safety, um, to understand that the rest of the world doesn't have that. Most of the world doesn't have that. And any, any technology that allows you to escape with your life savings is, is something that we should, we should fight for and promote. Yeah. Because yeah, there's a war now in Europe. We're seeing it play out in Europe. We're seeing yeah. it play out in Europe. Uh, there's not a lot of examples, but there are examples of people who explain that they fled Ukraine mm -hmm. with their private keys, That's right. with their Bitcoin. And we know how that's important. We know how, what important tool it is for human rights and for people who are in desperate situations. So I guess you, if you are working on the, legis the legislative side of this, mm. you, are, you have come full circle. Right. I suppose so. Yeah. And so you discover Bitcoin in... Uh, in the pandemic, you start listening to podcasts and now yeah. you're on one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Your podcast, <laughs> Safety's podcast. Yeah. Who the fuck? <laughs> um, so that was, you know, that that was an early experience. Yeah. And then I had a recent experience in my career, not as dramatic, but just as just as important to the client. Um, I had a client who owned gold Kruger Rands, which I guess are South African yeah. gold coins, and her father gave them to her. Um, and she kept them in a safety deposit box, uh, which she was the sole account holder of. Her husband, who was not an account holder, um, was hit with a judgment. You know, some business dealings went bad or something, and he owed money, and he was hit for a judgment. And so the creditor was trying to collect. And so they attached her box and said, we, you know, you're married to him. This is, we need to see what's in the box and to satisfy the judgment. His name was on the approved access list for the box, but was not an account holder. Uh -huh. Under Florida law, the account holder, you know, if the wife is an account holder uh, and the husband's not, you don't get to then, you know, attach the wife's accounts to satisfy the husband's judgments, unless they're joint, joint accounts, you know, but this was not a joint account. What happened was, um, the judge did not appreciate the distinction of having, uh, you know, access to the box versus being an account holder and kind of flipped the presumptions around and made our client prove that the husband didn't put the coins into the box. And there was testimony from her brother that, you know, they put in a certain amount. The judge disregarded the brother's testimony, found it incredible. And, uh, and so said, yeah, Coins can can be used to satisfy the husband's judgment. Take take the wife's coins that were gifted to her by her late father. 
we appealed and and lost on appeal as well. Wow. Um, and that was a really, uh, I mean, obviously frustrating for the for the client because you know this. Most devastating. It, it, yeah, I mean, not only is it just you know it's valuable property. It's a, um, but that, it's a gift from the father, and it was a gift from her father. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think we ended up. They, she ended up doing something where she has paid the value of it or something like that to keep them, but not right. So this client had her, her, you know, essentially her gold, which was secured in a safety deposit box with a custodian taken, you know, under color of law, essentially. Um, and so that primed me to realize, well, if you have some property that now is not in a custodian's care, that is a bare asset that cannot be attached, um, cannot be taken, then you know you're 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 in a lot better position than than that client was. So really, the um, the fixed supply uh, as a hedge against well, the fixed supply which prevents against currency debasement, and then both the strong property rights mm -hmm. of self custody both stood out to you as yeah. Based on your experience, as exactly. your childhood, your career—that's fascinating. Yeah, and it's and it's one of those things where you—it's you, frustrating that you have to have these, you know, lived experiences to understand the value um, as a Westerner. Um, like, you know, you, you had what was that? Uh, the concern.tech letter, where you know, the technologist said, "Oh, there's no, there's no value." To it, and then you know, Gladstein and and Zell got together and yeah. and said, "What are you talking about? Here's, you know, twenty human rights activists and refugees who said it saved their lives. Yeah. <laughs> How is that not valuable, right?" But those people are uh, people I don't find credible because they're the types of people who've been uh, posting and writing fight against Bitcoin for a long time. They've been told over and over again they're wrong. They've been mm -hmm. given case studies and examples, and they choose to ignore it. They're people that come from a place of privilege who don't understand the different kind of economic challenges that people face in other parts of our world. I mean, one of the guys, uh, I can't remember his name, but like he lives up in Berkeley in San mm -hmm. Francisco. Right. He lives a particularly privileged life. And he clearly hasn't spent the time to understand what it's like for somebody living in Argentina or Sri Lanka now, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. you know, any of these jurisdictions are, are suffering from either high inflation or even China right now, where we've had people protesting outside bank accounts because right. they can't get their, they money. Can't draw their money. Or he's failed to look at what's happened in Cyprus when the the banks essentially yeah, the, the bail in the, yeah. the bail in. Yeah, <laughs> they, they took their money. So they're either they're either willfully ignorant or they are privileged or I don't know what it is. There's mm -hmm. a list of things, but they clearly are missing the empathetic part right, of the brain what helps you understand that not everyone gets to live the same experience you have. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually think the US has fairly strong property rights compared to some parts of the world. It does. And it does. I also think the US has a particularly you know, fairly stable currency compared mm -hmm. to other parts of the world. But you have to see these other parts of the yep. world. You have to understand what other people have gone through. And for you to want to ban something that is actually a, a, a a lifeboat and a tool that helps people in very difficult circumstances. Honestly, I think they're some of the most despicable people alive. And you know, I challenge them just to, just right. just sit down with somebody like Alex Gladstein. Listen to these stories. Get out of your own bubble. Stop mm -hmm. trying to legislate against other people. Get out of your own bubble and understand what these people are going through. And if you're still against Bitcoin after you've heard these right. arguments, then honestly, I I I don't understand where you're coming mm -hmm. from.
And I think that's, I think you're right. I think that's what it comes down to, in my opinion, is there's some folks are maliciously, uh, you know, spreading lies um, and others are just ignorant because, you know, not, they just don't have to see it and they don't see it. Well, they're um, selfish. You know? I think some of these people are fundamentally selfish. Yeah. Yeah, if that you could be. If you come from a point of privilege and you want to create controls over people who don't have that privilege, which you know, makes their life harder and offers them less freedom, I think you're selfish. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, I yeah, fuck these people. <laughs> All right, man. Well, listen, I want to find a little bit like uh, start with explaining the difference between the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, okay. or, or how they work together. Just uh, act mm -hmm. like I'm some okay. red coat. <laughs> who's, run, who's run off with his tea, who's come back and he said, you know what, what can we learn from you? What, 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 what happened after we uh, sailed back to England? All right, so I think what, what I'd like to try and do is challenge your perceptions of the Constitution. Maybe you already have these perceptions and understand this to be um, the way to view the Constitution, but I don't think most people do right now. Shall I give you um, my two simple views of the Constitution? Sure, please do. My very first simple mm -hmm. view is that I'm jealous we don't have a constitution in the UK. I know we have the Magna Carta. Someone's yeah. going to comment on yeah, YouTube. Yeah. We got the Magna Carta. We don't have something which people refer to. We don't have mm -hmm. politicians standing up mm -hmm. uh, in Parliament saying, but in the constitution, or this is anti this is right. unconstitutional. We don't have the press saying this is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. We don't have lawyers saying it's unconstitutional. So I'm jealous that we don't have something there that we refer to mm -hmm. that is a framework for the kind of freedoms that we want within our country. That's the second thing. The other simple view I have is, seems to be hard to change. Seems mm -hmm. to be, feels like some bits need to be updated. You mm -hmm. know, we're a few hundred years since the, the constitution was written and, mm -hmm. uh, and established. Yeah, and that's a that's a valid that's a valid viewpoint, and a lot of Americans share that viewpoint. Okay. Absolutely, and a lot and a lot of, you know, depending on how you interpret the constitution, yes, I mean. That is a valid viewpoint. Now, there's again, there's certain ways of looking at the Constitution that um, give you more flexibility with the words, uh, and and that that way of interpreting the Constitution has fallen out of vogue in the last probably forty years um, in favor of you know strict textualism and uh, original intent. You know what what did it mean at the founding and it, you know, thus we can't have anything different now. Um, that's not, you know, I think people misunderstand what originalism really is. Originalism is, you know, the text is fixed. The meaning was fixed at the founding, but that doesn't mean that that meaning can't apply to new technologies and new societal situations. We just have to understand, you know, what those words conveyed at the time and then apply that meaning forward to new technologies. And you get examples like, um, you know, Justice Gorsuch, one of the new justices wrote a book and then there were some excerpts in a magazine, you know, going through some examples like Cruel and Unusual Punishment, the Eighth Amendment, you know, obviously, you know, lasers didn't exist at the time, but if you were going to, you know, blast somebody with a laser, you know, that would be cruel and unusual, right? It doesn't, mm -hmm. you can, you can adapt, you can adapt with the new technologies, you know, Speech. We'll come back to this perhaps later in the in the talk. Speech can can be code. encompass. It can be code. That's right. It can be something on the internet that you know the founders never even dreamed of. So, but going back to you know challenging of you you know your view. Uh, two points. One is the Constitution is leaving apart the Bill of Rights for now. The Constitution is 
sets the framework for everything that the federal government can do. Meaning if it's not in that document, the federal government doesn't have the power to do it. So it is, it is powers that the people conferred on the federal government. You have to find, so the, the, the first question should always be when a, when a government takes any action, how are you able to do that? Show me in the constitution government where it says you have the power to do that. Okay. Okay, so that's the first, you know, way to view it. It's a, you know, it, it's a, it's a list of permissions that the people have given the government, right? Uh, to check against tyranny, um, to give, you know, to make sure that they are very, the government is very constrained in what it can do. Um, it's, it's very much like uh, cryptography. You know, that's, that's the analogy I like to use with crypto cryptography now is cryptography gives you the ability to grant permissions to other people and protect your privacy and thus constrain tyranny from the government or from big tech or whoever is spying on you at this moment. Um, so the constitution's like that. It's a, it's a list of permissions. Um, the Bill of Rights does not, is not the source of your human rights. The Bill of Rights is again, another list of rights that the founders found important, but also a description of the ways in which the government is allowed to act vis-a-vis -vis these, these rights, which are unalienable, inherent, fundamental, right? So there was a debate, and this will get into the difference between the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and, and a little bit of the history. There were two groups that were fighting over the Constitution once it had been hammered out in the convention. Um, you had the Federalists, who were, you know, strong central government, who, who were, uh, you know, uh, approved of the Constitution as it was. And you had the Anti-Federalists, who wanted to keep things mostly the way they were, with the states being the primary governments and kind of what we had going on was like a League of Nations type thing with mm -hmm. the states. Um, no, no real strong over, overseeing government. Um, and one of the very valid anti-federalist arguments against the constitution was there is no bill of rights in here. Um, you know, the Virginia had passed a, a, a bill of rights, um, before the declaration of independence. Uh, it was, you know, Thomas Jefferson used it kind of to, to draft the declaration. Um, and Massachusetts passed one, uh, like 1780, um, and so this was, this was not an unknown phenomenon to list out, you know, the rights that people have. The counter argument to that, which I also find very compelling, uh, and we're kind of seeing the ramifications play out now today. Um, the Federalist said, yes, but if we list out a bunch of rights, then that's going to be construed as the entire universe of rights that people have. And that's just not the case. Right. Um, we can't possibly list all of the freedoms that people have. And so we don't want to constrain ourselves okay. that way through a document. And James Madison, who really, you know, in my view, was kind of the, the father of the Constitution, he kind of mediated between these two sides. He wrote some of the Federalist Papers and was in favor of the Constitution. He had come to the conclusion that the previous document, the Articles of Confederation, was just inadequate and really pushed to get a new Constitution. Um, but he also started out with the belief that we can't enumerate these rights, otherwise we will, you know, lock ourselves into this list of rights forever. 
he came around because eventually um, they passed the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment, which the Ninth Amendment says, um, you know, the enumeration of these rights shall not be construed as, as limiting the rights that the people retain, essentially. And the Tenth Amendment was similar, but as to the states, you know, the powers not given to the federal government and not prohibited to the states, you know, remain with the states and the people. Well, they put these amendments in to clarify, like, this is not the universe of your fundamental rights. This is not the source of your, you know, inalienable um, and, and your, you know, uh, your, your human rights. Um, and, and so that was how the anti-federalists ultimately came on board with the Constitution and, and agreed to ratify it amongst the, the state conventions. Um, is this, this Bill of Rights was included. What came first, the Bill of Rights or the Constitution? Constitution. Constitution. So the Constitution was actually passed. And so there was a brief period of time where the Bill of Rights was not, was not included because the Bill of Rights is you know, a set of amendments. So all 10 of the First Amendments were passed as one package um, as the Bill of Rights um, a few years afterwards. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. And so in terms of the work you do now, mm -hmm. When do you refer to the Constitution and when do you refer to the Bill of Rights? Mm -hmm. So the Constitution, uh, if you're doing criminal law, you're doing a lot, which I do not do a whole lot of, you're referring almost exclusively to the, to the Bill of Rights. Um, you're also referring to like, uh, you know, certain sections of the Constitution that uh, guarantee the right to jury trial and things like that, okay. which are not part of the Bill of Rights that are in the, in the main bulk of the Constitution. Um, if you're talking about anything related to, if you're out of the criminal context and then you're talking about litigating against the government or litigating you know, what the government can and can't do in terms of legislation, or that's usually going to be the main bulk, you know, the, the original Constitution, um, but not necessarily. <laughs> To give you the lawyer answer, it depends. It, it depends on the scenario. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes you refer to one, sometimes to mm -hmm. both, sometimes the other. That's right. And it's all case dependent. And um, is a lot of the interpretation of the Constitution comes down to the precedents that have been set with specific mm -hmm. litigation. Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, and so you have kind of this body of common law precedent that builds up over time they kind of locks in one interpretation or another. And then you have big kind of epochal changes in that, like we've just seen, just with, seen. with yeah, Roe versus Wade being overturned. Yeah. Um, but there are other, other examples in history too, where there's just big epochal changes. Like yeah. That. But the big epochal change that we've just seen now seems a very political change, but has it always been that way? <laughs> Is it, you know, I, I'm a little cynical and I, I'm, I'm of the belief it's always been, it's always been I political. Think, I think, I think, our view in the states of the Supreme Court as a you know ultimate arbiter of legal truth that stands above the political fray is almost something that kind of came about you know in the in the civil rights era, the '60s, the '70s, um, and maybe it existed in the past before. But it, it, there's always been gamesmanship. There's always been politics involved. I mean, I'll give you a good example that's that's relevant to, to money and Bitcoin. The biggest uh, case of the 20th century 
if you just go by you know press coverage, um, was actually uh, in the 30s, and it had to do with um, the federal government's attack on gold. <clears throat> and you don't learn about this case in in law school, and you don't learn about it in American history. Is that the, the gold executive order 2106? So it was related to that whole package that, okay. that FDR was yeah. was you know essentially that whole policy he was pursuing. And the federal government passed laws saying, you know, any any contract that has a gold clause in it, which was a clause that said, you know, if you owe me X amount of dollars, you know, uh, I want it repaid and I have the option to get repaid in gold, the gold equivalent um, of whatever it was at the time. And it was an inflation hedge, right? Mm. And it was, you know, these were clauses that existed since, you know, they always existed, but they really came into being um, after the Civil War when you had, you know, a very, uh, you had this big fight over paper money, uh, you know, the Civil War, the Union government, the federal government printed greenbacks yep. to fund the war, and then they were declared legal tender. Um, and states like California, who had a lot of gold because of the gold rush and had a very strong, you know, gold-based economy, the merchants all got together and lobbied the government and, and were able to put these clauses in that said, we're accepting gold and gold, you know, we're not going to be bound to, to accept paper money. If it says gold, you know, that's what it is, that I shall be paid in gold. And then the, they passed legislation that said, yes, if two parties agree to be paid in a type of money, the repayment has to be in that type of money. Um, you, we're not going to call it satisfied, the judgment satisfied, if you use greenbacks. Uh, it's got to be in the, the money that was contracted for. So these gold clauses existed. Uh, for a long time. And then uh, it came to a head when FDR was confiscating everyone's gold and then, you know, trying to push through his economic reforms. And um, so like the federal government had gold clauses in their bonds. Um, and, and, you know, also there were private, you know, these private ones. And so the government passed a law just saying like, those are invalid. Like gold clauses are invalid. You gotta, you know, you gotta pay up in, in paper money. Um, you got to accept paper money and discharge. So, you know, all the creditors took a haircut, right? All the debtors, of course, were very happy. Mm. Um, but these cases were like really, really big. Um, everyone was talking about them to the point where, and it was very, very rancorous. Um, and this was also at a time when the Supreme Court had been, you know, thumbing its nose at the presidency and just striking down all of FDR's New Deal plans. And it was very close to this time when he started being very aggressive in response and threatened to increase the number of justices on the court and pack the court packing scheme and all of this. But what happened with this specific, these gold clause cases is he had a speech written, a radio address um, ready for when, when the gold clauses would have been upheld, when they thought maybe the Supreme Court was going to uphold these gold clauses. Um, against, you know, and rule uh, against the, the president and, and Congress. So he had this speech drafted and it leaked. And it basically said, you know, I'm, I'm ignoring, I'm going to ignore the Supreme Court and we're moving, <laughs> and we're moving forward with, with our legislation. Um, and that has been seen by some scholars as, you know, this point where uh, there was a ton of political pressure against the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court bent to that pressure and ruled in favor of 
the president and, and the administration and, and invalidated the gold clauses. Do you think that was also because it was a time of pressure, economic pressure? Oh, for sure. For sure. Like a desperate situation. Mm-hmm. No, I, but it, you know, it just goes to show you that in the, you know, in the face of strong political, you know, yeah. fighting, um, because scholars, you know, you can read law review articles that discuss the, the actual reasoning of these cases and they're a little, a little strained, um, a little strained. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Jan, Brady, and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin-only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference alongside Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge, which I cannot wait to see as I am a gamer from the 80s. They are inviting all the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space, to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption, mining, and to lightning. Swan are also offering a massive 20% discount to this amazing event to listeners of my show, so just head over to pacificbitcoin.la and use the code PETER at the checkout. That is pacificbitcoin.la, P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.la, and use the code PETER. Next up, we have Ledger and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus, and with its larger screen, it makes it easier for you to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. Now, the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And you know what? I've been a customer of Ledger since 2017. I love my original Nano S, and I now love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest way and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against other people and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino really is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. So if you want to find out more, head over to BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is at bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. Please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for the people of the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more SATs, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase, but also not just that. You can also get 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar spent over 50000 annually. If you'd like to stack sets with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions. All available at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. But the, the Constitution doesn't refer to money, right? But the Bill of Rights does. So, 
so we can get into to this too. Going back to, um, you know, the federal government can only do what it's granted the power to do. Yeah, you wouldn't know that the federal government doesn't have the express power to print fiat money and declare legal tender. Right. Okay. That's 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 not a power that was granted to the federal government, and that was a conscious decision by the founders. Right. Um, and this is, and this, we know that because it was discussed, debated. Yes, exactly. So we have going back to James Madison. He took really detailed, like shorthand notes of of the debates at the Constitutional Convention, and the question was: Do we give the federal government that power? Do we not give the federal government that power to print money and declare legal tender? And the founders didn't agree on everything. They were not a monolith, but they did pretty much all universally agree that fiat paper sucked. <laughs> and they all hated it. And like some of the languages that that's recorded is like very strong, like, you know, evils of paper money. And we're going to crush paper money with this constitution. Um, so they really wanted to eliminate um, fiat and legal tender laws because there was a history in the colonial era of states just printing money and, you know, state money hyperinflating with all the economic ills that, that go along with that. Not every state. Uh, some states were, were pretty pretty disciplined. Um, but like Rhode Island and Massachusetts were were uh, were, were were pretty pretty bad about hyperinflating. Right, okay. So there so was they, this long they knew there was a risk and, and that, that was yeah. That was the point, wasn't it? They they were aware where are the risks? They were aware of the risks, very well aware of it. Yeah. Um and and you know, the previous document, the Articles of Confederation, also didn't constrain that type of printing. So the states continued to print their own money. Um, and so, right, they, they consciously decided not to grant that power to the federal government. Um, subsequent to that, however, we had the legal tender cases post-Civil War where that power was kind of inferred through all of the monetary clauses and then through another clause called the Necessary and Proper Clause, which you know it's kind of like a catch-all clause. It's supposed to be interpreted narrowly, but was interpreted very broadly. Um, and again, a time of um, you know this this was post Civil War economy was you know trying to reintegrate the states, um, and and there was all this you know union money that had been printed, and you know the Supreme Court needed to needed to say yes, that's that's lawful money and the federal government had the power to declare that legal tender, but that's not in the constitution. Right. Um, so, you know, that's an area where monetary reality and economic reality kind of, kind of trumps <laughs> what's, what's in the actual constitution. So there's, you know, the federal government can basically coin money, you know, specie, gold and silver. Yeah. Um, they can coin money, they can borrow money, they can tax, um, you know, but, but, Legal tender is not a power that they, the federal government was granted. At the time. At the time. But <laughs> here we are. That's right. With a very unusual situation. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so what is the legal tender status of the dollar right now? Is it, is it legal tender as set by the federal government or is it legal tender that... Um, or do, do, does this, do states have the option to create legal tender at the moment? How, like, right. Explain the whole piece. Right. So, so, yes, the U.S. dollar is now official legal tender, and you know, it's what it says on all of your banknotes, uh, your bills. Um, 
The states, if you if you go to Article One, Section Ten of the Constitution, uh, it has a list of. I also have it printed here, so okay. it's a little bit more. <laughs> oh, fantastic! There you go. There's a list of prohibitions on things the states can't do. No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters or mark and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Exactly. That's the important bit. Make That's any- the important bit. Okay, explain, like explain that. Then. Mm-hmm. Right. So this, this is going back to the founders really wanted to prevent paper money. And states were... The chief, uh, the chief, uh, you know, offenders when it when it came to paper money. Um, so they wanted to stop. They wanted to prevent the states from having any power to, you know, essentially engage in a, a inflationary monetary policy. And by and to do that, they passed this. They they put this provision into the Constitution that says, you know, can't make anything, which is very broad. Uh, but silver and gold coin a tender in payments. But that's for the states. For the states. That's why we don't yes. have a New York dollar or California dollar. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And you can understand why and you can understand why that would be, you know, beneficial to have a uniform, you know, economy. Of course, of course. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, the states were always allowed to to have gold and silver, you know, as as tender and Going back to California, you know that's what people used. So, so for a long time, is is gold and silver legal tender in every state now? Uh, not every state, but it I is don't in think. some. I think Wyoming, uh, it is. It might still be in California, but I think I am pretty sure Wyoming it so, is. So in Wyoming, if you want to, you can use gold coin to pay for things. I think so. And what yeah. what what additional status that does that grant that coin as money mm-hmm. being legal tender? Right, and this is where I think a lot of Bitcoiners get confused. Um, legal tender is actually a really kind of simple concept. It doesn't have. It, it does not confer tax exempt status. Okay. On on transactions used with that money, which is a common misconception. All it is is, uh, it's money that must be accepted by a creditor in discharge of a debt. Okay, so it must be accepted. Yes. So therefore, in Wyoming, you must right. accept it. Right. And when you say in discharge of a debt, mm-hmm. pre-existing debt, pre-existing so debt. that that is to distinguish it from spot transactions. Like I'm going to go Into down a to gas the, station. yeah, the Ventanita to get you know our Cuban coffee. Right, you know that would be a spot transaction where it does not have to be accepted. Give me an example of a a debt settlement where it sh- has to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, paying your mortgage. Okay, right? so if I if I Buy a, if I get a mortgage mm-hmm. with, I don't know, Chase in right. Wyoming, they have to, if I want to pay that mortgage in gold, they have to accept it. Yeah. That's fucking cool. I think, I think don't, you know, again, I'm not an expert on Wyoming's laws, but yeah, I yeah. think I saw that Wyoming is like one of the only states that actually, you know, ex, you know, has a provision for, for gold as, as legal tenor. I might call up Tyler Lindholm and say. That's exactly who you on, should talk to, actually. Are you, are you <laughs> be paying, the expert. Are you, are you paying mortgage in Gold coin, yeah. Tyler. Let me know. Because that's right. Because that's what in El Salvador with Bitcoin yeah. now is legal tender. That that was you know some of the trepidation and anxiety from the financial sectors. Like, oh crap, how do we now accept this crazy internet money? You know, to for people who want to pay their mortgages and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, well, so that's all. That's that's what legal tender is. It's not you know, and then 
going back to El Salvador, staying on that, you've got kind of this forced tender concept, right? Where even in spot transactions, someone has to accept it. Yeah. So that's a different scenario. That's a different scenario. And those, those did exist in the colonies um, uh, and, and were enforced. And that was also part of the reason the founders didn't like legal tender laws is, you know, the compulsory aspects of them. But for the most part, when we talk about a legal tender law, we just mean, you know, satisfies the discharge of a debt. Right. Okay. So when you start thinking about Bitcoin and you've referred and, you know, earlier in the interview, you said these, uh, when the constitution was established, that uh, obviously technology and things change over time. So there's a chance you could interpret this that, uh, as it says here, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. I think you potentially making the argument that if Bitcoin had existed, it may have been considered here as something that could be. Right. Yes. I, that, that's the argument I, I made. I, I wrote a series of articles for my newsletter going through, um, you know, basically what happened was I, there's this huge push for, you know, Bitcoin to be adopted as legal tender, right? And, and everybody's clamoring for that. Um, but, and even at the state level here in the States, and nobody is talking about Article One, Section Ten. Uh-huh. Like, not even opponents <laughs> are really raising it. So I was like, "Why are are we just ignoring this purposefully? Like, what? Let's let's address this." So nobody had made any arguments one way or the other. So I said, "Well, I'll just make all the arguments." Okay. So I made an argument based on an originalist interpretation of this section uh, that Bitcoin should be considered essentially a, a gold or silver coin that the founders would have approved of of bitcoin based on its similarities with those commodity monies in that the, there's no central party that controls it there's yeah. a scarce aspect scarcity unfortunately unforgeably costly yeah um all those aspects of bitcoin um that that we prize um were were apparent in gold and silver and obviously bitcoin elevates that right with a you know global monetary network um I also made the counter argument, you know, the strict textualist counter argument that this is a very specific clause. You shall not make anything. That's a very broad term, anything but gold and silver coin. And that's a specific term. So you've got a prohibition that's very broad, can't make anything legal tender. And that would then, if you apply that to new technologies, right, because it's a broad, Hmm. broad term, broad original understanding that would eliminate Bitcoin because it doesn't fall under the exception, which is very specific of a silver or gold coin. I'm, I presented that counter argument as well. And then I have kind of a follow-up uh, policy argument that I, you know, I don't think that this is good policy, even if it is constitutional to adopt Bitcoin as state legal tender. Uh, and so we can, we can walk through all those if you want. Yeah, please do. Um, so the argument for how Bitcoin could be considered, uh, you know, legal tender under this clause is going back to what we were talking about with the founders and their intent of, you know, eliminating inflationary monetary policies based on their experience, you know, the colonial experience um, and the debates and their writings after the debates and during the debates. um, We know that, you know, they, they basically had three objectives by by limiting the states to gold and silver coin. Uh, you know, they wanted to eliminate that inflationary monetary 
monetary policy. They wanted to stop currency and trade wars amongst the states because what some states were doing, like Rhode Island, was they were printing a ton of money and then Massachusetts had to accept it and they were spending it in Massachusetts before the prices would rise, right? So then they were exporting their inflation to the other states and then there was tit for tat after that. It was like a state-level Cantillon effect. That's right? like the Monopoly board argument that Preston... Did you listen to my recent interview with Preston Pish? Uh, no. no, I didn't get So he was talking about uh, trying to explain mm-hmm. uh, inflation. Right. And he was saying there's uh, two games of Monopoly that happening mm-hmm. at the same time, but there's one new rule in that you can buy properties from the other board. So you can own mm-hmm. property on the other board. And so what might happen is that the players on one table might collude and say, you know what, when we pass go, we're not going to give you $200, we're going to give you $600. Mm-hmm. And obviously, your wealth increases and you've got more money than the other game. So you think you can look at the other board and mm-hmm. go, oh, I'm going to start buying some of that property. And because things are becoming scarcer, the people around that table are like, what the, what the fuck's going on mm-hmm. here? Like, you know, they're, they're accumulating, our, they're acquiring our property. And, you know, we're feeling poorer. So they might collude and go, do you know what, when we pass go, We'll um, we'll crown ourselves a thousand dollars, exactly, and they start buying back, and yeah. then you just have this tit for tat. That's 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 exactly what played out amongst the colonies, right? Yeah, and and that's exactly what the founders wanted to stop by preventing the states from being in control of the money supply. That makes sense. Yeah. So that was the second reason. And then the third was which you can't do with gold and silver. Which you can't. Right. You can't. You can't print more gold and silver. Exactly. You yeah. can't. You know. Yeah, so that, that, that's what they were trying to prevent. Right. And then the third thing that the founders were trying to prevent was um, foreign entanglements, pissing off foreign countries who, you know, want to do business in the States. And now they got to, you know, transact in 50 different, well, at the time it was 13, 13 different, you know, currencies. Right. Um, and, and keeping, you know, foreign affairs within the realm of the federal government. So uh, if you look at those purposes, right, um, gold and silver were the best money to solve those problems, uh-huh. right? Because, like we were saying, you can't you can't dig more gold out of the ground much faster. Certainly not. Certainly not then. Um, and you know, so you had this concept of hard commodity monies. That's what gold and silver were. That's the original understanding of this. That's the only thing that fit that description, right? That solved all these ills at the time. You know, you couldn't use tobacco. Right, because you know, it just tobacco is not unforgeably costly. You can grow a lot more of it, and then it de- you know depletes. You use it; it's perishable. Yeah. Um, and this is what like states did. Right, they had commodity monies that were not gold and silver. They had tobacco notes. They actually had notes that were good for like a bale of tobacco back at the warehouse. Huh. Yeah. Before bef- before uh, independence, this is right. this is kind of how they got around not having specie because they're on the other side of the world and nobody wanted to send their money over there. So they had to get creative. So commodity monies were what the, the you know, colonists were using and what the you know, early Americans were using. And gold and silver was the hardest commodity money. So now we have, that's the original understanding. Now we have technological developments. We have synthetic commodity monies, right? This is what George Selgin describes Bitcoin as. And uh, that is, you know, Bitcoin is inscribing this hard money, you know, monetary policy. Uh, it is the it is the hardest. I mean, it's the hardest money we have now, 
right? I uh-huh. mean, it's it, the, the inflation, besides, it's, it's right on par with gold inflation level-wise, and it'll decrease past gold very shortly, uh, and have you know, the lowest inflation rate. Um, so if you look also at Satoshi's writings, right? And his, his Federalist Papers. That's his Federalist Papers. That's right. You know, some of the early, you know, Bitcoin talk forms. Yeah. Uh, he describes, he describes it with, you know, analogies to gold, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that post about, you know, imagine a, you know, colorless, you know, gray, you know, metal that was, you know, hard to produce and, but, you know, people wanted it because you could send it wherever you wanted it to go. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the early forerunners to gold, like, uh, Zabo's bit gold, you know, they're all, they're all referring to gold. This is, you know, Satoshi's, you know, describing, uh, you know, the mining process and analogizing it to gold. So, you know, now we have digital gold, we have Bitcoin. Um, and it's just an extension of this commodity money concept, uh, that's, that was the original meaning here in, in the art, in article one, section 10. So the interesting part of this is that even if uh, the states can make gold and silver legal tender, because of technology and the way money works now, and it is essentially digital, mm-hmm. it's kind of painful. It's kind of annoying. If a bank accepts gold, then they have to take custody of it, mm-hmm. and then they have to sell it. And it's just it's a painful thing. Exactly. It's kind of annoying. It, you know, yeah. I can see why they wouldn't. But actually, they are check and balance against the money printing. Mm-hmm. Um, they reduce the power of the state, of the federal government. But, but Bitcoin's a different scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, Bitcoin, because it's still digital and the way exchanges work, if a, if a bank was to accept it, like they have to in El Salvador, right. there's an instant liquid market where they can come out of it and, and then hold the dollar. Mm-hmm. So if it was to be made legal tender, that would, re- that would essentially achieve what I think the founding fathers would have wanted to do, which is reduce... The impact or the the inflationary pressure that comes from mm-hmm. printed money. Absolutely, yeah. So the argument for it to be included here mm-hmm. is quite strong. It, it is yes, it is. I, I I think it's fairly strong until you get to you know a strict textualist analysis. Anything, anything, and so the textualists say you know original intent is fixed meaning to new technology, sure, but only when you have you know, a broad broad language that's capable of encompassing that new technology. And so if you apply that here, like I, well, going back to what I was saying, anything is the prohibition, right? That's the broad language. So you apply anything to any new technological money that comes along, because that's broad. And again, going back to you know, commodity monies in the colonies, there were tons of different commodity monies mm. um, and tons of different, you know, monetary devices. So they knew that, you know, gold and silver wasn't the only thing and that there would probably be some, some you know, new way to, uh, you know, a, a different commodity that you're going to, you know, new paper bills that come about, some new technology or scheme that, that would uh, come about as money. So they, you know, that's the argument there if you're, if you're looking at anything as being you know, broad language that encompasses anything subsequent to to the founding. But the, the interesting part of this for me is that one of the things I romanticize about the founding mm-hmm. fathers, which I know 
once you get into it, you you learn about the different flaws of the different characters, what they would argue about. But yada, yada. but but there was this. For me, it felt like there was this general integrity that existed to restrict the power of the federal mm-hmm. government to avoid tyranny, because you experience that as people under a oh, British king. <laughs> oh, was it even referred to as the British king back then, or were we referred to the English king? I think I think you were still Britons. Yeah. Were we Britons? Yeah, I think it was there? British. Yeah, the British Empire. Yeah. yeah, the British Empire. <laughs> um, but ever since then, there's been obvious scope creep of what the mm-hmm. federal government does. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a lack of integrity since for those politicians, not all, but a lot of politicians, not to... Uh, carry out their duties with the same integrity of protecting the constituents from a overreaching government. Mm-hmm. And it, for me, it would feel like any interpretation of this, when it's to be debated or discussed, the starting point it should be: Are we interpreting? Should we interpret this in a way, or are we interpreting this in, in a way which does reduce that power? Are we are we able to achieve what the the founding fathers wanted to achieve right. with this. So you can be literal mm-hmm. and prevent Bitcoin, or you can be more pragmatic and understand that the introduction of Bitcoin into this does further what the founding fathers mm-hmm. wanted to achieve. Right. And, and you know, there's, you're exactly right that, you know, there's a risk when you're talking about strict textualism that you become hyper-literal. Yeah. And, you know... And tyrannical. Yes. And, and in fact... If you look at the definitions, you know, the contemporary definitions of gold at the founding, um, you know, yes, it was a metallic substance, um, but it also was just defined as just money, right? So the meaning of gold in this clause is they're just referring to money, right? And we know a hard commodity money, but, you know, anything that's money. So you can, you can find contemporary um, textual examples that that do support a broader interpretation of gold and silver, and even broader interpretations of coin, right? Because that's another limiting uh, word there that it's got to be a gold and silver coin. Um, but coins, you know, there was coin was used like we use coin today very broadly. You know, I'm going to coin a phrase. I'm going to coin paper money is is how they used it. Um, Benjamin Franklin talked about uh, coining land. In a land in a land bank, bank almost you know like tokenizing assets like we think about today with with digital assets. And, and this is quite interesting because this helps me understand a little bit more now around the debate re- regarding the Second Amendment, which has been debated mm-hmm. a lot recently with the very mm-hmm. tragic cases. Um, I don't have a copy of the Second Amendment in front of me, but it discusses a well armed. Well, you do, but well, I'm not. Gonna well, yeah, <laughs> but it's a well armed yeah. militia. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously those who uh, interpret it literal will say, well, these aren't militias now. Right. But those who interpret it, I forget the language you use, but they would say that it allows for any person to right. hold a weapon. Right. And, and in the Second Amendment, too, the, some of the debate is over the, you know, a well-regulated militia yeah. is kind of a prefatory clause. And then you get into what is this really defining the rest of it or is this just kind of an introductory clause? Like, yes, a well-regulated militia is important. The right of, you know, to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Yeah. Right. It's almost like they're two separate 
thoughts. At least that's what the Supreme Court has said, is that there, is there are two separate. There is, there is a comma. There is yeah. a comma. So they are so, two separate thoughts. Yeah. But I, I can see that's how then the interpretation comes. And then, hmm, okay. So back to the work you're doing. This is at a time now where we are seeing uh, debates from state to state regarding Bitcoin. Uh, some states are very pro-Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, Texas is pretty pro-Bitcoin. Wyoming is pretty pro-Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Even here in Florida, it's fairly pro-Bitcoin. And then we're seeing states which have a slightly different approach. Which <laughs> maybe New York, you would say, is yeah. a little bit more cynical regarding yeah. Bitcoin. Um, and this is the cool thing about living in a republic, mm -hmm. is that you get to vote with your feet. Right. States compete and you can go where the laws are that mm -hmm. you prefer, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, but therefore, there are there are people proposing in certain states that Bitcoin becomes legal tender. I mm -hmm. see Dennis Porter talking about this relentlessly. Right. Yeah. Arizona had a uh, they, had a proposal that was just straight up Bitcoin is legal tender. Okay. The, well, the definition of Bitcoin is very <laughs> simplistic and probably wouldn't work. But yeah. But but what that is a proposed bill. Yeah. What is the actual process that's, that has to go through to be ratified, mm -hmm. in, say, in Arizona? Right. So if Arizona were to pass that bill, so you know the legislature would pass it and then the governor would, would sign it into law. And it would just be the law of the land until someone challenged it. Right. Um, and you know the way that that would come up in that instance is somebody would try to discharge their debt with Bitcoin and then you know the, the creditor would, you know, would refuse to accept and then the the debtor would have to sue uh and uh and then you you'd, you'd go along from there all the way up the you know it'd be in state court at first and then you'd have arguments that you know it violates article one section 10 and you know all the way up to wherever and when it ends at the supreme court then you have the precedent that sets it mm -hmm. interesting yeah so so are you doing this work to help guide people or like why are you doing this right exactly so that is the question why am i doing yeah. this uh, again it's it is to help guide people and to help guide the policy um you know to help help people think about things a little more critically um and, and to put these arguments out there so that they are well, these articles these arguments exist and so if there's ever a court case you know we, it's 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 kind of like open sourcing okay these arguments yeah, right I get it, I get it. You know, I, I want people to join in and and you know provide some counter arguments and poke holes and you know, let's let's really vet this because you know, good policy should should come out of you know that open that open discussion. You know, hopefully before we get to you know a big a big you know case where we're arguing over you know constitutionality of legal tender. The Arizona bill is not going to get. That was just kind of a you know political stunt, right? That's not. That's not really going anywhere. That's a hack. Yeah. <laughs> Get some Bitcoin and follow me. It's, it is a hack. It's the Bitcoin hack. Yeah. Yeah. We know it exists because we get approached by nearly every single one mm -hmm. who wants to come on the show. Mm -hmm. They're going to get followers. But fine. Like, in some ways, maybe that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. If that hack exists and it works, it's because it's the will of the people to want right. it. So now, you know, and I want to go in and say, you know, I've made this argument that I think is pretty strong that, you know, the original intent of the of this section should include Bitcoin. I personally don't 
like the idea of well, yeah. tender. <laughs> so that that was like my yeah. final. We were going to start with this, and then we, yeah. me and Danny agreed this should be the final question <laughs> because we we met up last night. We went out for tacos. And yeah. yeah. Mexican and a couple of beers, and you said, "I don't think Bitcoin right. should be legal tender." Right, and so this is this is because going back to that definition of legal tender, yeah, it only applies to pre-existing debts. But what it's doing is it's in, it's impairing those debts. It's impairing that private contract between two you know consenting individuals. That freedom of contract has been eliminated because now, as the you know, creditor, I have to accept Bitcoin. And that's not what I agreed to. A legal tender always has to retroactively, retrospectively, yes, it, it, retrospectively yeah, apply to legal. Yeah, you couldn't have yeah. it for all contracts post I mean you could you could pass you could put that proviso in the in the in the law. I mean sure. But but, but you still don't think it should be legal tender. Because yes, I mean, I would I would be more in favor of something like that where it said we're gonna apply this prospectively. Um, but, um, the other thing that legal tender laws do, right, is, um, they, they favor one money over the others, mm. right? And it eliminates that kind of free, you know, economic process, uh, you know, that happens when you have new, new commodities, new goods that come onto the market and that natural monetization process, you know, we're all Bitcoiners, but I think we want the best money to win. Yes. Right. And right now that's Bitcoin. But it might not always be Bitcoin. And is there another risk that if Bitcoin did become legal tender, there would be an argument for shitcoin A, shitcoin B to be legal tender? Oh yeah, that's 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 definitely a, you know, a risk. Um but I you know, I think I think the more important thing to consider Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's a risk. But again, it comes back to, you know, I think we all want freedom, right? That's what that's, that's why Bitcoin exists is to be apolitical freedom money separate from the state. Uh-huh. And when you start to then advocate for the state to come and be involved in your freedom money, you know, it, it's, I hate the phrase slippery slope, but it starts to be a slippery slope. Because first it starts as legal tender. And then it moves to compulsory tender. You know, everyone has to accept it for all transactions. Which was one of the big criticisms with El Salvador. That's right. And then it moves to, well, maybe if everyone's got to accept it, then maybe the government's just start, you know, fixing the price, which never works with any, with any money, right? But, you know, and especially won't work with Bitcoin, but causes a lot of headaches for everyone. Um, so that's, that's the danger of, you know, and again, if... This is supposed to be, we're supposed to be separating the state from money, just like the founders wanted to do, is to keep the state out of the money, mm. uh, you know, to keep, to keep uh, our freedoms and our liberties intact. And that's what Satoshi wanted to do. And that was the cypherpunk movement, was to keep our liberties intact by, you know, granting the government limited permissions where possible. So I just, I find it a little hypocritical um, of some Bitcoiners who are actively, look, if they're in Bitcoin for their bags, right? And they, and they know that, you know, states accepting it as legal tender is going to increase the price and they're going to, you know, profit, like, that's fine. You do you, but like, don't then say you're in it for freedom and human rights. Cause you know, those things are starting to be, you know, in conflict. 
Well, or maybe they didn't understand it to the extent that you've explained it just now. Because well, maybe. Okay, let's go back. <laughs> go back 24 hours. Uh, I've said somebody said to me, you know, Arizona, Texas, Wyoming are all going to make mm. Bitcoin legal tender. I'm not thinking about my bags. I'm just thinking, wow, that gives us extra regulatory protection because it's now legal tender. Right. Um, it, it advances the uh, opportunity for more people to consider and own Bitcoin to escape mm -hmm. the fiat system. To me, it kind of in some ways feels like it provides more freedom. It's only by having this you know, hour plus I've had with you now that I now understand yeah. it actually reduces your yeah. freedom. Well, and, and you're correct that it, it absolutely would bring those beneficial aspects of you know shining light on Bitcoin and getting everyone you know aware of it. But it reduces um, your freedom. It, it, it does. It, it's gonna reduce your freedoms. And, uh, and look, people are going to say, well, it's inevitable. Like, you know, governments are going to do this anyways, you know? Um, and yeah, they, they probably will, but like, let's, <laughs> let's not invite the government in now when we still have time to, you know, strengthen Bitcoin uh, against attacks, be they governmental or, or otherwise. The other thing is there are alternative policies that achieve those same, you know, beneficial results. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. What, 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 what legal protections would you like to see? Mm -hmm. Right. And you're starting to see them, right? Gillibrand and yeah. Lummis's um, uh, crypto digital asset law, which is going to provide a, a tax exemption on, on transactions under $600. That's great. I think that's what a lot of people want. Which right? rises with inflation. Which, which rises which with is inflation. a really smart clause. It is. It's a really smart clause. And I hope it stays in. And I hope, I hope you know, I would be in favor of a larger initial transaction limit. But $600 is great. I, I just hope it doesn't get batted down, you know, when it comes to the backdoor fights with the Treasury and, and everyone else. But that's a that's a that's a federal bill. Yeah, that's yeah. a federal bill. It's not something that states can do. States, you know, I'd like to see uh, Bitcoin clauses like the gold clauses we were talking about in in uh, in contracts. Um, and then I'd like to see states passing bills that say, yeah, any any money you want that you contract for, like that's that's what the judgment has to be satisfied in. Because otherwise you get a situation where we contract in Bitcoin and there's no, no USD denomination whatsoever in our contract. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. And then you know, we get into a dispute, you win a judgment against me because uh, you know, I didn't pay you the, the Bitcoin. Um, but because USD is legal tender, the government says, well, it's, you know, one Bitcoin is equal to $19,000. So here's your $19,000, but you don't want the $19,000. You want the Bitcoin, right? Hmm. So unless you have those laws that are saying we're going to respect freedom of contract and, you know, whatever money is chosen by the consenting parties, um, you know, it's, it's, you can put all the clauses you want in your contract, but if you have to enforce them, they're not going to be enforced the way you want. Hmm. So that, that's something the States can do. Um, and that's a, that, that is a general purpose law that would encompass all altcoins, encompass anything, encompass, you know, tobacco notes, maybe. <laughs> Is there a group of uh, Bitcoin-interested lawyers who are actively getting together and discussing these things? Do you have a cohort that you are working with on these discussions? Because I think... Like I said, is I think I think some people pushing towards having legal tender perhaps don't understand the implications mm -hmm. of it. Um, a bit like you have the Bitcoin Policy Institute working on educating mm -hmm. 
with um, within yeah. the, the Congress, hopefully. Um, do you have a cohort where you're out there actually trying to help people who are pushing for mm -hmm. uh, changes? To so it's so it's interesting talking about a cohort of, yeah. of Bitcoin lawyers. There aren't too many. That, look, there's tons of digital asset lawyers yeah. who are very smart and very good at what they do. Well, they're going to be busy um, helping people with the SEC. <laughs> exactly. Um, and there are groups of those that are, you know, kind of more in like the DAO space. Yeah. And there's, you know, DAOs of lawyers who get together. Um, but it's not Bitcoin focused. Um, there aren't too many lawyers who are Bitcoin focused. But there might be um, some who are interested, like for sure. yourself. For and sure. I just think if that cohort existed, mm -hmm. then you could be having those discussions, debates about yeah. the implications of some of the things people mm -hmm. are doing. And then you could help educate via, via my show yeah. or via... You know, a Twitter space mm -hmm. or when a you know, Dennis Porter is pushing something. So uh, what I'm what I'm actively exploring now is putting together a um, kind of an amicus program or a judicial education program, um, and I've been in talks with some policy groups. Nothing's nothing's settled yet, so I'm not gonna I'm okay. not gonna say anything about it. But this is what I'm exploring doing, um, and and educating. Um, you know, the policy makers uh, and, and those who are advocating for policy, but also the judiciary, because, you know, the groups like Bitcoin Policy Institute and, uh, you know, Bitcoin Today Coalition, you know, they're focused on, you know, talking to lawmakers and talking to the agency, uh, you know, enf enforcement arms and, and, but they're not talking to the judiciary yet. And so what you've got is you've got, you know, the lawmakers who are going to make the law are being educated on Bitcoin. Um, you've got the agencies who are going to enforce the laws being educated on Bitcoin. Um, but then the judiciary who's going to review that enforcement are not being educated on Bitcoin. And so, you know, I kind of like to think of those three, you know, it's the three, you know, it's the separation of, of powers. You know, yeah. you Congress, you know, the agencies are in the executive and the judiciary. You know, it's kind of like Bitcoin, right? You know, the lawmakers are kind of like the devs. Yeah. Right? They write the code, they write the law, you know, and then the miners are kind of like the agencies, they enforce, you know, they run the code, they enforce the protocol. Um, but then you've also got validator nodes who check the work of the, inf of the enforcement prong, and that's the judiciary. Interesting. Um, and we don't, we haven't had much outreach to the judiciary yet. So that's what I'm exploring doing is, is helping either through, um, you know, appearing in cases on behalf of interested policy groups to file amicus briefs. You know, Coin Center does this work. Yeah. Um, and they're super smart guys over there and they've been doing it you know, a hell of a lot longer than I have. Um, but, you know, they're a large tent and they're not focused expressly on Bitcoin. So to get a group together that would, you know, be interested in doing that, that's, that's one, one, one of the things I'm exploring now. That's quite interesting, that separation of powers within Bitcoin that mm -hmm. you've identified and, um, and how that works. Mm -hmm. That's, that's that's, I think I've heard that before. Maybe I have. Maybe I, I'm I not. I'm sure I'm not the first person yeah, to mention that. But it's I'm quite sure interesting. Yeah. And it's quite interesting, like the rules of consensus are a mm -hmm. bit like the Constitution. Right. There's like a real. It's 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 almost like Satoshi. It's almost like it's intentional, right? Yeah, it's almost like it's intentional. <laughs> it's almost like he looked upon the separation of powers and the Constitution, right. and, and that's part of the framework he used to mm -hmm. build Bitcoin. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything in this I've not asked you about though? You, We've missed. Uh, I mean, I could go on all day. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else you want to talk about. You know, so 
Um, you know, one of the other things I'm exploring is this, you were talking about some states being anti, you know, or hostile to Bitcoin. New York passed their, yeah. their moratorium on proof of work, uh, which hasn't been signed by the governor. Yeah. And so I'm exploring, uh, I, I wrote a, another article on that and how the moratorium would be a violation of the First Amendment, uh, freedom of speech. So I'm exploring, you know, a test case related to that. I think we're going to save that for another yeah. show. Yeah, because I think, I think that's, that's, I think that's okay. <laughs> we, did, we did discuss <laughs> that a lot before. To talk about there. <laughs> so we had it here and we're like, look, we, you know, we always wanted, we want our shows to be between an hour and an hour and a half. We yeah. think that's a sweet spot. And we're like, if we run in about 45 minutes, then we'll go into that. But right. we, we've got to come back to Miami soon. And I think that would make for a second fascinating yeah. and show. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll have a lot more concrete uh, to discuss about yeah. that in the next show. Um, so some people listening won't know you won't have heard of you, but might be interested in getting in touch, yep. wanted to talk to you and engage with you. How do they find you? So you can find all my articles on uh, bitcoinbrief.io. That's uh -huh. my newsletter. I've also published uh, a couple articles in Bitcoin Magazine. You can just you know search for you know Aaron Daniel on Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, shoot me an email at Aaron at uh, bitcoinbrief.io. And then my Twitter is at WADaniel. So... That's we'll where you can find that. me. You can also just search me on the Florida Bar website. Well, call we'll, my office. We'll shove that all in the <laughs> show notes. Look, I'm really glad we got to do this. This was fascinating. Yeah, thank you for having uh, me on. This has we, been a great discussion. We had to. Uh, we stopped by. A, was it Was it stopped by a hurricane before or a tornado? Yeah, it was a tropical storm. Tropical I was going to meet you in Nashville. Yeah. And uh, the first first storm of the season blew through, and uh, I was I was telling Danny, you know, one of my friends' neighborhoods was like completely flooded. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, his house was okay, but yeah, it was. A little dicey there. We've been okay thus far. Well, I'm Hurricane glad we got season to do hasn't this. kicked up too bad yet. Yeah, I'm glad we got to do this, and we will do it again because uh, we, we've already realized we've got to come back to Miami pretty soon. So we always got to come back to Miami. Always got to come back to Miami. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, really appreciate you coming on, man. This is fascinating. It's um, really interesting to hear. And uh, anything we can do to help you stay in touch and yeah. good luck with us. Oh, I appreciate man. it. I th Thanks. I think people are gonna want to talk to you. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, I welcome all criticism uh, and discussion. Please seek me out. All right, man. Well, listen, good luck with this. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to reach out to me, please do get in touch. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do try and reply to all messages, but you can also go and check out my Telegram group. There's a bunch of people in there always talking about Bitcoin. All right. I will see you all very, very soon.